welcome to Minute 139 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today on this lovely Thursday is Stephen J. Rubin, producer, screenwriter, author, documentarian, and an all-around expert on The Great Escape. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Great to be here, Rob. I'm just having a ball digging into our favorite movie. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 doing it really. We're doing it justice this week. I mean, I've been doing justice every week, but you know, this is the first time with you, so that works well. Oh, in, in all these segments that you've done, what has been the most startling discovery that you've had? I'm curious because Ooh. we've had a great conversation, but is there was there something that somebody said that actually rings in your ear? Or I, I got to tell you, I've I've talked how many hours about this movie? I can't currently pinpoint one particular aspect. Because you know, I've been I've been recording this over the last few months, so to say where there was something, uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we've we've found and pointed out even in the first week, you know, when when the when all the POWs get out of the truck, you know, if you if you look carefully, you see one of them has a guitar, oh. and then in a in a later scene, there's a group of prisoners that are walking into the barracks, and one of them is carrying a trombone. You know, which made made me wonder. You know, maybe they were planning on trying to film a scene with a you know a band or something like that that just didn't pan out. I've I've been looking ever since. I think that was the second or third episode with the trombone. I've been no, actually it was it was the week, so it must have been it was the third or fourth episode because the first two episodes really nothing happens besides seeing the the trucks driving through the uh, countryside. I always thought the opening of this movie, where the line of trucks and motorcycles comes into the camp, is just just so interesting, uh, like almost like a ballet as they're driving up those little circular driveways and getting to the camp. And um, I think that... Uh, well, because you got Bernstein's music with that also. Yeah. So, well, that's yes. another thing that's very funny about watching movies. Imagine the filmmaking of this movie where there is no music. And, you know, the, the, the Bernstein score in all of these sequences, particularly the ones we're watching now, lends such atmosphere, dimension, and depth to the, the, the filmmaking. It's amazing to think that they were making this with no music whatsoever. And um, just goes to show you the power of great film music. Uh, I, think we, I think we've lost a little bit of that in today's cinema. I think scores are not as present as they were back then you know the big full orchestral score we associate with star wars and close encounters obviously the great escape you don't see that as much i mean my favorite score of the last 10 or last 20 years is uh um the uh, score for the lord of the rings trilogy i thought the music also added enormous dimension to that movie yeah, Howard Shore did an amazing, amazing job. job. And I think that you can't really remember as many scores anymore because I don't think they're as as dramatic and dynamic as they were back in the day. And, of course, Bernstein is is doing music in the 60s, and you could argue that the 60s was really an extraordinary period for great film music. Yeah, no question about that. Did you, did you ever uh, interview Bernstein? I did not. Unfortunately, I did not meet Elmer, and I'm, I've been a big fan of his music all the way back. You know, obviously, The Magnificent Seven. Uh, he does another war movie six years later, uh, The Bridge at Remagen, which also has a very good score of his. Uh, right. I, I saw that. I didn't, I didn't like that movie that oh, much. But 
you know, it's not as iconic. Well, it doesn't sound like you're going to do a minute on it. <laughs> uh, no, I will not be doing the Bridget, Bridget Remagen uh, minute by minute. That That is not my plan. That is very true. When I was listening to the the commentary on the Criterion Collection, so one of the same track that has Sturgis also has Bernstein on it, which they had from the, the original Laserdisc from 93. And one of the things that, that, that annoyed me was is it doesn't tell you who's speaking each time. You have to try and guess based on based on what they're saying. So Bernstein has a little bit to say about the movie. And, and one of the things that, that, that really stood out for me was the fact that he was talking about how important a film score is in a movie, but he also was talking about how important it is for scenes where you know that you don't have any music also. He's saying that the important thing is to know when to, when to also play scenes without music, which also will add tension to the, to, to the, the scene at the same time. So I found it to be a fascinating point oh, yeah. well, his, that he made. His, um, his low-key background music, particularly in sequences with Blythe and Hanley, which, as we've talked about, is kind of the heart of the picture, are just really brilliantly done. And, of course, mm-hmm. uh, that little theme, whenever uh, Hiltz gets thrown in the cooler, is also really iconic. Um, also, uh, and I, I won't be here because you're, you're going to do it at the end of the movie, and I'll say it now. I love the fact at the end of The Great Escape, they show all the actors and their names and, uh, you know, and their characters and their nicknames. That should be done more often. I always thought that Band of Brothers kind of – the one misstep with Band of Brothers, which is one of my all-time favorite experiences – uh, watching TV or film was they did not do that at the end of each episode because a lot of the guys in Band of Brothers wear their helmets the whole time. You don't know who's who. It would have been nice for the actor particularly. If I, when that time I do a film where I have soldiers in uniforms, I'm going to make sure I follow that great escape approach. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can also use the same example of Saving Private Ryan where they don't do that either. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, you know, it's funny. The the credits for most movies now run for five minutes. They've got thousands of names on it. But the actors... But they don't have pictures. They don't have pictures of the actors. You know, how difficult would it be to show pictures of the actors? They just don't think of things like that. It would be a nice tribute to the actors. And uh, that's why The Great Escape stands out in my mind is doing that. Yeah, completely. And now, I, I mean, I love the way they do the, the credits in The Great Escape. But my favorite movie credit scenes from Lethal Weapon 4 where, <laughs> I don't where they show where they show pictures of every one of the cast member the cast and crew members because it was you know the end of the the, the quadrilogy so oh interesting okay so I'll they, they play the song uh, why can't we be friends and they, they they show all the pictures you know of of you know different people who are working on the crew not even you know we're not just talking about the main cast this movie only shows the pictures of the main cast which which is great one of the things that really frustrated me about the, about uh, doing this movie is there are so many uncredited characters, which it's impossible to find out who they really were. Right. No, you it's know, very the little bit parts. Even 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 people who actually have you know little speaking parts or whatever. Sometimes you just don't know who they are. No, it's very very true. Very very. Yes. Minute one thirty nine begins with Hilts continuing to flee, and goes all the way to a point where Hilts slaps the barn. So, as we were discussing yesterday, Hiltz was in the juncture where he met up with all these German soldiers. And gets a little frustrated that he, for some reason, doesn't know how to explain to them why he's there. Gives gives one of them a kick and begins to flee. 
and goes all the way around this town through the countryside. Now, if you really pay attention in the first second of this minute, as he's coming down this little road, so there's a fenced area on the, the left-hand side, you can actually see someone running to the left. Now, I don't know if that's supposed to be a crew member or if that's supposed to be a farmer or something like that. It's just, I find it really funny that, that there's someone just running. You know, it's a completely <laughs> deserted area and you can see someone running. They never give I, us I, a shot of McQueen from that angle. So it, you can't say that it's a, you know, a cameraman or something like that. Well, I... Um, you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up to that moment right now. Um, yes, uh, I did not see it. went by so fast. But let me tell you a little bit about this barn. In 93... Well, we haven't gotten to the to... barn yet. We're not at the barn yet. Okay, okay. Um, let I'm, me go I'm back. I'm talking about right now when he's, when he's riding through the, the field. And, you know, right after the, the... Yesterday we discussed about the motorcycle crashing into the... You know, as he's going over that little bridge. Right after that, so he continues down the little path. And then there's this okay. fenced off area on the left-hand side. And you can see someone run from the far end of that fenced off area. And he runs to the left away from where McQueen is coming. Oh, I did not see that. Um, uh, yeah, well, that's a good catch right. for you there, Rob. Very good catch. <laughs> Again, it could, just, it could be, you know, the farmer. It doesn't necessarily have to be an extra or a crewman or anything like that. So then the scene moves along and we, we, we get to see uh, Sedgwick standing next to a train and he decides to, to open up the, the 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 car of this apparently cargo train then he, he climbs in makes himself comfortable and obviously reaches back to take his large suitcase which as we discussed earlier this week we actually know what's in that suitcase exactly thanks to thanks to what Sturgis told you exactly <laughs> exactly and uh, if you if you notice how he picks up the suitcase he it, it looks really light He's picking it up, and it doesn't. Maybe he does have a tent in there, but it's a very light tent. <laughs> it's a very light tent with very skinny poles. Uh, yes. And then, well, no, the, the poles. He, the poles he could theoretically have them, you know, collapsible or something like that. Right. Right. I mean, um, Sedgwick. He is the manufacturer. He's the manufacturer. Exactly. Exactly. So then we we move into this barn area, right? We're getting to the barn. Then, well, then we see the train. Pull away. The steam on the train goes, and the, the driver starts taking the train out. They actually give us uh, quite a few seconds of this train just pulling out, which seems somewhat extraneous to be showing this. I mean, I know that one of the things that, that Sturgis mentions on his commentary is the fact that he had so much trouble with the studio that they wanted him to cut the movie, and he had nothing that he could cut. You know, there's there's the... the the story that he tells that he cut out the whole scene with the with the Taylor Griffith showing Roger, you know, how he makes all of the different disguises. And he took that out at one point and then showed the movie to, to a group of executives. And they, they came and complimented him afterwards about how great of a film it was. But they said, but but where did they all get their clothes that they used during the escape? <laughs> and Sturgis' response was, is there's a reason that 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 scene was in the movie. <laughs> Although after what Griff does by uh, kind of breaking all the rules and climbing out of the tunnel, uh, I, I he should have been thrown out of the movie for what he did. You know, that's come very on, true. That's very come true. Come on, come on, Griff. Yeah, you know, as, they could have as, gotten out of the 
as bad as Griff is, we, we all know that, that uh, and, and my, my good friend Jay Cluett, who was on the first week, as he mentioned, and we've mentioned numerous times, the foil of everyone here is definitely Cavendish. He's the guy who didn't right. know how to do a proper survey, and they're 20 feet short because of him. And he's the guy who fell on his package as walking out of the tunnel. Yeah, right, so. which causes Frick to get the attention. There are a few few fo foibles there. Exactly. It is interesting also that uh, the original escape took place in snow. Yes. So it was a whole different uh, different uh, uh, climate at that time. Do you remember what day the the uh, the the original escape was? Well, is it on Steve McQueen's birthday? Yes, it was. I was I was March I was hoping I was hoping that I was going to be able to finally give you some information that you didn't know. <laughs> Uh, it was on Stephen McQueen's 14th birthday in 1944, March 24th, 1944, which, which to me is just amazing how that just fell out. That it way. is amazing. You know, if anyone's birthday that could, it could fall out on, it happened to fall out on Stephen McQueen's birthday. And we're not even talking about before he was born or something like that. He was, you know, he was a 14-year-old kid right. at the time. So that that's just amazing to, to, to think yeah, about. Yeah, it's so funny. It's Stephen Queen is such a modern character in many ways. You don't think of him being a child of the Great Depression. I mean, he was born in 30. Interestingly, he and uh, Sean Connery had interesting parallel career trajectories. Both of them were 1930. Both of them had made movies that uh, appeared in the U.S. market in 63 that propelled their careers. Obviously, Steve with The Great Escape and Sean Connery with Dr. No. So, uh, but for, unfortunately, Steve's uh, trajectory was was limited because of, of the things he was dealing with. You know, he was a much uh, less confident actor than Sean Connery was, and obviously, Sean was less uh, uh, put less um, trauma into his body. Um, of course, McQueen had the, the slow ticking time bomb of that asbestos that he got from cleaning out those World War II era. Uh, Barris when he was in the army. Right. It's very true. I mean, another two famous actors that were born in 1930 were are, is Gene Hackman and uh, Clint Eastwood. You know, it's, it's it's very interesting thinking about the fact that all four of them were born the same year. Yeah. No, no, it's very true. Very true. And it's even more amazing that, that two out of these four are still alive in, you know, at this point in yeah. 2021. And it doesn't look like Clint Eastwood wants to retire anytime soon. I think he's... Uh, He's, he may be directing at 100. Well, I, th I think he realizes, like most people, that once you retire, you're, you, you, no longer will, will, you no longer will have the same drive that you had before. So what's the point? Good point. You know, it's like George Burns. George Burns never retired either. You know, and he made it to, what, 101, 102? I think 100. Bob Hope also. He died just after he turned 100. Yeah, no. Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, Rob, I hope you and I can make it to 100 because we'll still be talking about The Great Escape then. Yes, we definitely will. There's no question about that. So well, then we, we get another shot of Hilt's bike, uh, motorcycle. The, Cedric's the one with the bike. <laughs> and we, we get to see him uh, just riding through the countryside. I, I, I keep calling this uh, motorcycle porn. You know, these, these are scenes that don't need to be there. And it's, it's it's gratuitous shots of McQueen on a motorcycle, which which are fun to look at. Not necessarily they don't they don't move the plot at all. Well, they give, they give you great opportunities for Elmer Bernstein music. Now let's talk a little bit about this barn. All right. In ninety 
In 93, I took a camera crew into Munich uh, with my friend Deborah Goodwin, and we tried to track down this barn. These barns are ubiquitous. They are all over the Bavarian countryside. So I was particularly intrigued that uh, Chris and his forensic team in the 2000s not only found the barn, but they identified it by an imperfection in the wood, uh, which we'll see in a second when Steve's right behind, uh, when well, he's taking a, his uh, stance right behind his motorcycle. And there's an indentation in the wood, which is exactly in the indentation which they found right there where he's about aiming his gun at the first motorcyclist. So I was fascinated that they found the actual barn or used for storage in the Bavarian countryside. And uh, again, you've got Bernstein's music pulsating here. And then he's looking at himself. You know, he looks at his uniform and then he makes the wise choice of not doing what Haynes did, which is to carry the uniform all the way through. But he takes off the uniform. Which, right. All right, you're jumping, jumping a little bit ahead of us. We're, we'll be talking about part of that tomorrow because this minute actually ends when he slaps the barn. Oh, he does. Which, which to makes no sense. Why, why do you think someone would slap a barn? Because the barn insulted Did the barn make a good joke? The barn insulted him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he was I, – I think my, my, my understanding at the moment was he was looking to see if it was hollow, whether that that whether that – wall would support his weight because he didn't want to put his hand on the barn and fall through it if it was rotted wood or something like that. That's why I thought he slapped it, to make sure it's solid. Mm. Right. Now, I was thinking that he should find a way to get into the barn top because it would make more sense for him to hide within the barn right. as opposed to waiting for someone to come right. by. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Right. Okay. Could, could be either. The one thing that is interesting about this movie is the fact that they shot it in actual Germany, I think, makes the film. You know, Relier uh, was asked to scout um, uh, Southern California as a potential location, for it, especially up in the uh, Big Bear area, the woods were. And because uh, they were thinking of building the camp up in the uh, up in the San Gabriel or not the San Gabriel Mountains, but the mountains near Los Angeles were. Big Bear Lake is. And I think that by setting everything in Germany, this movie, and this may be one of the only American films that I can think of that uses extensive real German locations. Now, obviously, Bavaria was not where the original camp was. The original camp was in Silesia, which is uh, east of Berlin in in what is present-day Poland. Um, So I And in in those days, it was spelled with an S, as in Sam, because it was a German town. But when the war ended, that territory became Poland. And now if you go to Zagan, it's spelled with a Z, as in zebra. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Fascinating. And and have you been to Zagan or not? I have. I took the 93 crew there. And uh, uh, everywhere around Zagan are huge Soviet cemeteries with red stars literally everywhere. And that's why uh, that's why I had trouble finding the RAF tribute. I had heard from, I think it was the Royal Air Force Historical Society, that there was a tribute to the great escape victim somewhere. But all I kept on finding were these Soviet cemeteries. And then one day I was looking across the road and there was this little enclosure. And I walked up to the fence and in kind of a rusted little plaque, it said RAF and then something in German. And then I realized that this was the tribute to the German uh, to the victims, and as I did in my 93 documentary, we filmed the stone tablets 
which were a tribute to the 50 victims. Wow, that is fascinating. That really is. So you have anything else you want to say about this minute? I think we're about to get into some exciting stuff on the next minute. Okay, so I I guess that means you want to come back tomorrow. (laughs) I am so there. (laughs) Excellent. So you want to once again tell people how they can get in touch with you? Sure. I have uh, three uh, sites on Facebook. One is called Just Plain Old Steve Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. Then I have Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. You can read reviews of classic films. And then I also have the James Bond movie encyclopedia based on my book, which is currently in the stores in its fourth edition. And that's the best way to reach out to me. All right. Excellent. And while you're doing that, you can go review and subscribe on any podcatcher that you may be using to listen to this show. You can visit our website, thegreatescapeminute.com. Our email address is thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler. And our Twitter account is GreatEscapeMXM. So until tomorrow, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.